series itself, but we also looked at the first commandment, which is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Ultimately, that is a matter of worship, and we are going to look more on this, but tonight we're going to move to the next commandment, which is commandment two, and it focuses on idolatry. So we focus tonight, it's week number two of the Ten Commandments and today. We look at the topic of idolatry. Jesus, we love you, and we are so grateful for you, your name, your spirit, your word, everything to do that brings so many, so many beautiful things into our lives, and that's why we worship you, because of who you are, not necessarily what you just do for us, but you're worthy of praise and worship, and we love you and adore you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many of you have ever... Step whether it's Sunday school, it's a it's elementary school, high school, uh, private school, public school, whatever it is. How many of you have ever stepped into the role of being a substitute teacher? Raise your hand. Raise your hand up if you have been a substitute teacher at any point in your life in any setting. Right. I wish we had time to pass the mic around to just hear the stories of what went on, because I'm sure there's some really good stories, and then I'm sure there's probably some really interesting stories. I remember being in our private school, and sometimes we would have substitute teachers. You would think that in Christian education, things would be great, and we would welcome the substitute teacher with the joy and admonition of the Holy Ghost. We welcomed them with joy, but maybe not the Holy Ghost part. I remember one substitute teacher, Royal Sister Eggstat, came into the room, and she was such a sweet, elderly lady, and uh, we should have been sweet young kids, but uh, we didn't feel like doing work that day, and we were probably, I want you to know, I was in the class, but it probably was not me. I just, just want to clarify that. Um, and uh, we had a class. I think we had like maybe 20, 20 kids in the class. And she was coming into our, our classroom, and we were just, they were just being crazy. And somebody purposely had called her up. We, I would think we would have probably been in maybe seventh grade or so. I, I'm not sure, eighth grade. And... Uh, Somebody purposely called her up for a question, and she came and looked at the, and she was just being set up, and then she went back to her desk, and in the meantime, somebody had put a whoopee cushion on her, on her chair, so she sat down, and everybody, and she got so angry and grabbed that thing and threw it up into the air, and it went up behind the bookshelf, and we lost our whoopee cushion, and she stormed out of the room, and moments later, he came here once, Brother Robert Kurz, if you remember him. Our principal walked in the room. <laughs> and he said, you think you're going to treat her like that? And everybody was like, but, uh, you know, substitute teaching is not for the weak and the faint of heart. Because, you know, you walk in and the students, no matter what setting, I think even in Sunday school sometimes, the kids are like, oh, wow, who's the substitute? We're going to have fun today. And, and they push the limit of what's acceptable. And uh, we think we're clever, but people have been treating substitutes poorly for thousands of years. 
Moses' older brother, Aaron, had quite the day as a substitute. Moses had climbed to the summit of Mount Sinai to hear from God. And guess what? He leaves Aaron in charge of the people, really of a couple million people in the middle of a desert. And what could possibly go wrong, right? Hey, I'm heading up here. I'll be back in a while. You're in charge of the million plus people in the desert. Take care of them. I'll be back. Nothing can go wrong. I feel like this is a comedy or something. But it's not a comedy. Because we pick up where Moses has been away for eight chapters of the Bible. That's long enough for him to climb the mountain, receive eight chapters worth of instructions on how to live. And really for God and for one another. And over those days, even weeks, the people were getting restless. They didn't know where Moses was. They didn't know, is Moses coming back? Was Moses ate by a mountain lion? They didn't know. They had just gotten freed from Egyptian bondage 430 years. And they're going, where? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And so they wanted to worship something. Because at the end of the day, humanity, humanity wants to elevate something or someone. That's why people say, well, I don't believe in religion. That same person will elevate something or someone. I mean, that's why you don't have to teach little boys to put football players' posters on their, on their walls because kids are going, hey, oh, he's awesome, and they want to elevate something or someone. And so Moses is gone, and, and they're like, we, 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 we need something. Well, we came from Egypt. God called us out of there, but they had thousands of gods. We talked about that last week. And so we need something. Like, who are we worshiping? What are we elevating? What are we doing here? And so they approach their, approach their substitute teacher for the day. And Exodus 32, verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain, and he held in his, command, in his hands the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. See, we don't usually get that when you search Google Images. It's just on the front. But yeah, they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. And these tablets were God's work. The, word, the words on them were written by God himself. When Joshua heard, because Moses went up with Joshua, Joshua went up halfway, and he waited for Moses. And, and jo Joshua heard the boisterous noise of the people shouting below them. He said to Moses, it sounds like war in the camp. Moses replied, he said, no, 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 it's, it's not a shout of victory nor a wailing of defeat. I hear the sound of celebration. When they came near the camp, Moses saw the calf. In the dancing, and he burned with anger, and he threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf they made and burned it, and they ground it into powder, threw it into the water, and forced the people to drink it. They had all brought gold and silver, and they had put that in, and they melted it and made a golden calf, and they were dancing around it, worshiping this false golden calf, this false god. So Moses is just furious. That's why you say, you're not supposed to get angry. Well, no, because Jesus got angry. It says, be angry and sin not. Moses was angry. He threw those tablets to the ground, and he's like, I'm burning it all, and you're going to drink the water. That I mean, like, that's. Finally, he turned to Aaron and demanded, what did these people do to you to make you bring such terrible sin upon them? 
Don't get upset, my lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know how evil these people are. The woman that thou gave me, it's the serpent's fault. We never have lost that. It's always someone else's fault. Just ask your kids who did something wrong in the house. It's never them. It's somebody else. Just once, I want to hear my kids go, you know what? Yeah, that was me. That was a poor decision. <laughs> At any point in their life. He says, don't get upset. You know how evil these people are. He's, verse 23, they said to me, make us gods. Not even a god. Make us gods. Where do you think they got that from? Egypt. See, because we live in this world, but the, the world has an influence in our lives. We have to be aware of that influence. Make us gods. They said, make us gods who will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, I said, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. They brought it to me, and I threw it in the fire and made this, and, and, and out came this calf. Man, people say dumb stuff. I don't know what happened. It's just like it was meant to be. I threw it all in and this came out. Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get completely out of control. And much to the amusement of their enemies, which it's amazing. Because no matter what you're doing, when you're living life as a child of the king, even when you don't think people are watching, people are taking note of the way you carry yourself. It didn't take long, and the children of Israel were already, they're already directly defying the commands of the Lord. Remember last week, the way the Ten Commandments started, it is the, he says, 20 and 1, it says, the God gave the people these instructions. I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or the earth or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them to worship or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Do you think the entire family was affected when mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, the kids were all dancing around a golden idol? Your decisions don't only affect, only affect you. He says, even the children of the fourth generation, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations and those who love me and obey my command. Oh, I love God, I just not into the obedience part. You're going you're gonna to be hard-pressed to find Scripture that backs that logic. Old Testament, New Testament. He that do, you look in the New Testament, he that doeth the will of my Father. He that continueth. He says here, I'm going to bless people who love me and obey me. Last week we looked at verse 3, you don't have any other gods but me. But verse 4, it says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens, or on the earth, or in the sea. And as I prepared for this, I, my first thought was to try to jam this second command into last week's lesson, because I'm like, it's essentially the same thing. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make idols. Let's hit that and move on. And save me a week from losing your attention. 
then I studied a little deeper, and I ran out of time to cover it last week, I understand. But here's what I found. The first commandment protected them from against idol worship, where they had come from. The second commandment protected them against where they were headed. One was, hey, this is what I'm calling you out of, and you're not going to have any other gods before me. But now where you're headed, don't rise up any idols and elevate them in your life above where I am. The nations in the promised land worshipped images and idols aplenty. It wasn't, just what he, it wasn't just Egypt what he called them out of. They were getting ready to go through Jericho and several other nations. That all these nations had idols. And so God knew you're going to have pagan influence for the rest of your life on this earth. Just like we will. And so their gods were gods they had made with their own hands. These first commandments, they seem so simple. Like, yeah, don't, don't have any other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Got it. Let's keep moving. Let's get to the kill, murder, adultery. I mean, like, that's, that's the interesting stuff. But God knows. He, he, how does Israel mess up so fast? I mean, Moses doesn't even get down the mountain. And they're breaking the commands. Why would God give those commands? Well, he... Paul says that the commandments, the law, was a schoolmaster to bring us to the place where we have a revelation in humanity that I don't care how good I am, I desperately need a savior. And so the law really brought them to that point until a time of grace where God took on flesh, walked among us, and died on the cross for us. But God knows us. He created us. He built us with this need for worship. And Israel could have begged Aaron for weapons, for food, for medicine, for maps. But nope. They begged Aaron for gods who would lead them. Even people who don't worship God still worship something. Because we look to elevate something or someone. People worship their job, fitness, money, children, their stuff. Now, I know you say, well, I don't agree with that. I don't bow down to my job. Yeah, but worship is from the Anglo-Saxon word worth-ship, elevating something to a place of high-level importance. God knows that we all worship something, but he also knows that he is the only one who is worthy of our worship. And he's the only one who can save us, heal us, help us, protect us, fight for us, deliver us, comfort us, watch over us. He's the only one. God knows that no other God... We'll be able to lift a graven finger to help us. So he forbade us from making other gods to replace or to represent him. And as Brother Demas preached a couple weeks ago, that can be a lot of different things. I don't think I've ever gone into any of your houses, not one time, where on your fireplace mantle, I was like, wow, where'd you get this? Oh, that's a beautiful picture of my family. Oh, don't touch that. That is what I worship every morning. It's a golden cow that sits on my, uh, and every day my family gets around and we sing a seance to the golden cow on the fireplace mantle. Now that happens in our world, but I've never met anybody here that that's on your fireplace and you're dealing with that. But like I ended last week's lesson with, we can, we can start to take things and say, yes, but this right here I'm elevating to. I can't make it to prayer meeting because this. I can't come to church because this. And so we start to elevate things to a place where we say this is more important. We won't say it. But our actions speak it. And so the Egyptians, Aaron set 
out the offering plates. And, you know, they're pressuring him. And, and he sets out the offering plates, asks for the gold earrings. And the children of Israel brought them. And, and they brought them by the armloads. And the Egyptians gave them gold and silver as they were leaving Egypt. The fact that they had all this stuff, I'll just clarify here. And I'll hit this and leave it. The fact they had all this was not because God approved of the adornment. But because the sinful nation they were leaving gave it to them. But God takes things of the earth and he is so wise in that he can use something that's not even a godly thing and use it to bring himself glory. Why do you think God would possibly allow all the people to get all of this gold and all of this adornment and leave into the middle of the wilderness? Well, there was going to be traitors along the way, and you would have to barter with people along the way. And eventually, God was going to have them build what in the middle of the wilderness? A tabernacle. A tabernacle that would be filled with golden Ark of the Covenant, a brazen laver, and these things that he was going to put, a beautiful adornment, and all of this altar of incense that was crafted beautifully and he gave them the provision to be able to bring that and and build kind of like he's giving god could provide in miraculous he could have somebody from the city say i'm going to build your building and we would go oh that's awesome but when you read about when god would build things through his word he seems to always choose to provide through the people because it's in that journey that your faith is elevated and you bring something that's valuable to you to invest it in the kingdom what's valuable to God. And that's what you've done and what you're doing on, even on the stewardship campaign. And so the fact that God sent them with that, it was not like, well, then why did God let them wear that or do that? It wasn't necessarily for that. He was, he was saying that the pagan nation they were leaving, they gave it to them. And God was going to use that to provide for them, and they started using it for personal adornment. So, they brought this to Aaron, and he went right to work. He melted it together and made a golden calf. Exodus 32, 4 says, then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, molded it, shaped it into a calf. He told Moses it just came out that way, but he did it. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, if any of us were gods, we'd have just struck them dead and started over. Like, y'all knuckleheads, I literally just rescued you. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Start over. Thank God for grace. It appears that God was almost ready to do that until the leader, Moses, interceded to God on the people's behalf. Oh, the power of intercessory prayer. And so it appears he was ready to do that. But, but at that moment, the people were happy that Aaron was happy. Then Aaron takes it a step further in verse 5. He says, Aaron saw how excited the people were. So he built an altar in front of the calf. I mean, because sometimes people are just looking for votes. They're just looking for the approval of the people. I know we don't have politicians today that would say whatever we want just because they're looking for our approval. But in that day, that probably happened. And so he says, wow, they're happy. They're excited. So 
I'm not just going to have the golden calf. Let's make an altar in front of the golden calf. And tomorrow is going to be a festival to the Lord. That, that word Lord is all caps. That is J-H-V-H, Yahweh, Yahweh God. So do you understand what's going on here? Aaron says, here's the golden calf. I put an altar in front of the golden calf. But tomorrow we're going to have a festival to Jehovah, Yahweh God. Aaron was doing his best to walk in two places. To merge two ways of life together like some people still do today. I don't want to walk away from God and leave the church. But I also don't really want to stick out in the world. And I kind of want to blend and fit in there too. So I'm trying to figure out a way to where I can fit here and fit here. So he, he says tomorrow is a feast day, to, a festival to the Lord, to Yahweh, to Jehovah. People got up early next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace, peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting, drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Aaron was trying to manage two million probably restless people in the desert. And he still remembered it was, it was Jehovah who brought him out of Egypt. He knew that. Aaron was apparently trying to tiptoe that razor-thin tightrope between monotheism and idol worship, keeping people happy but still standing for something. But while trying to honor God, they were feasting and celebrating with pagan rituals. And Aaron tried to marry the image of a visible God with the worship of an invisible God. But the second commandment does not just prohibit us from making idols to replace God. It also prohibits us from making idols to represent God. That's why the second commandment used this wording. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. God knew that the minute his people would use any type of image, it would be a matter of time before they would replace him with that image. We want someone we can see, someone we can touch. You might read this story and think they were nuts for what they did. I can't believe they would do that. But they had come out of a culture where everyone around them had gods that they could touch and hold and manipulate. And so they came out of that. And in this story... I'm not there yet, but in this story, Moses disappears, and they're wondering where he is and where God is. They wanted something to see and touch. For Israel, when God's people eventually started setting up subdivisions in the promised land, they were surrounded on every side by nations who served a pantheon of gods, and one of the favorite gods was called Molech. And so this is an artist rendering uh, of what, what Molech was here on this left side, on my right side, your left side, as viewing on the audience. And we read a familiar phrase over and over again in the, New in the Old Testament. And it would say this, parents caused their children to pass through the fire to Molech. Anybody ever read that in scripture? It's listed several times throughout the Bible. 
Molech was the god of the Ammonites, one of Israel's arch enemies. The statue of Molech for Molech was a man with a bull's head that towered over everyone. Looks something like that. And it's interesting because this is where they would bring their children. And while Molech, with Molech, a fire would rage inside, inside the statue, and it would heat. Guess what happens when you put a fire inside metal? The metal heats up, and it would heat up the entire metal statue. And parents would come willingly and voluntarily, and they would climb up steps with their own children in their arms. And they would place their firstborn child on the red-hot hands of the metal statue. And as flutes and drums would play in the background to drown out the screams of the child, the child would try to avoid the hot metal of the hands, and it would roll itself into the fire of Molech. History points to this. And in worship to a false god, because this was pleasing to a false god, they would do this over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament. And the only thing that's more pitiful than hearing that anybody would do that, it would be that the children of God would invite Molech into their land. I can't believe I would know. That's crazy. Who would ever do that? That is a statue, a Satanist statue in Detroit, Michigan today. Boy, doesn't that look familiar. And is it interesting? Now, ain't nobody sacrificing children and putting them on a hot metal and boiling them and doing all that like they used to because they'd get arrested, at least for now, thank God. But look at the statue that was carved with two little children just gazing up into the eyes of Satan. Folks, if this is not clear to you, the enemy from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the 21st century, the enemy is not, the, just, does not just want you. The enemy wants your children. The enemy has always wanted your children. That's why in the Old Testament, when in Egypt, they would take the boys and the, the baby boys and they'd throw them in. And, and that's what Moses, they drew them out of the water. He got that name because his mom said, well, hey, Miriam, you got to go follow him. Let's make an ark of bulrushes, send him down the Nile River, see if we can salvage him, save his life. Because they were killing all male, male little baby boys. Guess what happened when Jesus was born? Herod, they're killing baby boys. The enemy has always wanted our children. And now today you say, well, man, they want the children to kill them. No, it's, it's a much deeper death. It's a much deeper death than just throwing them in a fire, throwing them in the Nile River. Now it's this. I want the children to gaze into the eyes of Satan and to live a life where they pursue him and not God. That's the day we live in. Well, you, you, your kids live a sheltered life. I don't even know what that means. I think you mean that derogatory toward me. But I won't argue with you. Yeah, you're right. You're right. My kids will never watch halftime music shows of Super Bowls. It's not going to happen. My kids are not going to go and watch Hollywood movies at theaters. It's not going to happen. Now, I know some of you say, man, you are extreme. You are crazy. But no, my kids are not going to be erased in a life where they stare up 
and gaze into the eyes, wow, of the world. And it's so amazing, all the things that you have for me. Because since the beginning of time, the enemies wanted our kids. That's why. Why do you think the first real murder came from the children of the first people of humanity? The devil had already gotten Eve to eat and share it with Adam, and he ate the fruit. Why didn't he stop there? No, because he never wants to stop with just you. He wants your kids. So we better make sure that we're having an environment in our home that says this is a godly place where we're not going to bring in all the external influence that says, well, yeah, that, that then our kids are being raised going, yeah, but we watch this, but we go here in church, they preach this, and the songs we sing say this, but the songs that we play on the radio when we're driving somewhere, they say this. Oh, come on, it's just leisure while I'm driving around. They're not even paying attention. I guarantee you they're paying attention. We read these passages and shake our heads. Didn't they know Molech? He was powerless to help them when they needed help. They didn't know this. We can't fathom this, but when you fast forward to 1 Kings 11 and King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, king of Israel, in Israel, the wisest man, they are caught up in worship of Molech. Right in Israel, Solomon. And they're setting their kids on his hands and watching their children roll in the fire. Then there was Asherah and Baal and Chemosh. These are the ABCs of the Canaanite gods. The Canaanites were scratching their heads wondering how this nation, on the new nation on the block, how can you guys worship a god that doesn't have an image? And so they were insecure, like, oh, yeah, that's true. And, and instead of them being the influencers, they're the ones being influenced. How do you know what he looks like? Don't you need a statue? How can you worship someone invisible? But God's people were unlike other people. They were called to walk by faith and not by sight. There's no argument. They were absolutely worshiping a God unlike any other God in history. How do you trust a God you can't see? How do you worship a God who speaks to your heart? Listen, I would, I would rather trust a God I cannot see than one that I can see but doesn't have power. I'd rather worship a God who speaks to my heart rather than one who's incapable of speaking at all. Israel had been wandering and going through the wilderness for a while when Numbers 21 tells us something. Numbers 21.4, it says, Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, uh, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. If you've ever been on a road trip with a group of people, I said this last, you understand this. Now imagine being on a road trip with two million people. And it was for decades. You would be weary too. The kids would, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I thought we were supposed to be there by now. The discouragement drove them to disrespect because when you get discouraged on a journey, my question to you is this, where does it drive you? 
you're walking this way. You wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night if you were not in some type of pursuit of a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. But on this journey, you're going to get discouraged at some point. God's not going to respond as fast as you want. He's not going to show you something, reveal something, provide something. You're going to think his timing is off, so you're going to lose someone, something. It's going to be very frustrating. You're not going to feel what everybody else is feeling. There's going to be times to where you're like, man, is this it? Is this all? Why did this happen? I don't get this. You're going to be discouraged on this journey at some point. Where does it drive you? Because too many people, the easiest thing is I get discouraged and they just leave. We see that in marriages today, too. That's not God's plan. No, 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 no. The discouragement, where does it take it for them? They began to speak against God and Moses. Verse 5 says, and they began to speak against God and Moses. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. They wanted God to do something, and so he did. Verse 6, the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. <laughs> Whoa, it's not exactly what I was wanting when I was asking for a double cheeseburger. And the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. Moses is such a good man. I mean, wouldn't be there a part of you that were like, no, y'all pray. You know what I mean? Like, but he prayed for the people and the Lord told them, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten, if they just... If they'll live, if they just look at it. So Moses made a snake out of a bronze and, and, and attached it to the pole. And anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at the bronze snake and they were healed. Wow, praise God. Sure enough, it happened. But doesn't this story puzzle you just a bit? What about the second commandment? Don't have any idols. What about the idols? What about the images? Perhaps God was testing them to see if they would worship him or the idol or the image. If this was a test, they flunked big time. Because years later in 2 Kings 18, the Bible tells us the bronze serpent was still around. And it had to be torn down. Because guess what happened? The people were worshiping the bronze statue of the serpent. Because it had gone into the lore of their, their, their generations. I'll tell you a story about that serpent. This happened in the wilderness. And I'll tell you. And so it became this elevated to the point where they had to tear down the landmark of what God had done in past years. Because people, they, they started giving glory to the creation rather than the creator. You see, we're learning lately that how religious symbols and even things given to us by God can be removed. Look at our church building. <laughs> what an, we're, we're a 
we're a mobile church. This is not even our building. How do we do this? Somebody else owns this. They pulled the rug out from under us. How do we function as a people? We're doing fine. We're doing fine because the building is so important. We're going to build a new one. But it, it, the building does not have the power to stifle the spirit of God. No matter what building that is. If they came to me and said, oh, prices went up six times. We can't even build your building right now. I would be bummed. And I would tell you. And I, I'd be like, wow. But guess what? We could go rent the community center. We could go to the library. We could go to a school. We're still going to have the presence and power of God. Like, it's not the end of the world. God provided the resources and volunteers to build this building more than 40 years ago. But if we fall in love more with the building than with the God of the building, we can literally even make the same wholesome, godly things idols. People used to do this with certain preachers, prayer cloths, or even a cross hanging on the dining room wall. People will cross themselves. As they look at an artistic piece of wood on the wall. And if you reverence the cross, fine, praise God. But other people, they'll think there's magic in the prayer cloth. Or if they could just, oh man, I got to get to that conference. Man, we just missed it. Brother Woodward was preaching at the Life Church. If I'd have got there, if I could have just had Brother Woodward lay his hand on my head, I would have been healed. Hold on here. Hear me when I say God absolutely uses things and people. Paul talks about putting a handkerchief, a prayer cloth, praying over it. I think you can. Somebody's in the house, you can't see them, especially during COVID. I mean, like we would send somebody a prayer cloth. You pray over a prayer cloth. Say, I pray over this thing in the name of Jesus, God. Let that, when it hits their body, let there be healing virtue flow. But this was never magical. It's the power of prayer and saying, God, I'm, I'm actually putting my faith in you that you can even utilize something like this and have it touch someone and they could be healed. Lord God, you could have anybody right now. I'm telling you, we've got a special speaker in the area. Lord, I know that you could use that man. You could use that woman. But guess what? As great as Brother Woodward is, as a, as a preacher who is preaching a conference, we could come up and we could have any one of these five ladies in the front row lay hands on you. And God will do the same exact thing that he would do if Brother Woodward prayed for you. So if we're not careful, we start to take symbols, people, things, and elevate them. My, you know, my dad, he would sometimes, it was just a pet peeve of his. If somebody has this in their wall, this is not a, not a knock. It's not disrespectful. But my dad, it was just his pet peeve. He'd go into someone's house. He'd say, man, I wanted to, they got Jesus up on the cross. I want to go up to their crucifix and pull him off. Don't they know that he rose from the dead? He's not there anymore. Because the cross is like, hey, I, I believe in Christ. I believe in Calvary. That's, that's fine. But the minute I start going, oh, the holy cross that sits on that thing. Listen, the cross is the cross. And Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. And I thank God for the cross. But the wood hanging on my wall is not kind of like sometimes people even with Bibles. Oh, man, that. Did you just accidentally tear that page? I think we should reverence the word of God. But the word of God is not limited to something that came off a printing press. The word of God is alive. It's, it's, it's powerful. It's, it's not just limited to one bound book. And so what I'm saying is, yes, we should respect the things of God. 
But we can't get to the point where all of a sudden we start to elevate those things. Oh, God used that serpent. What a story about what God did in the middle of the wilderness. But I'm not going to start going, oh, the serpent. Oh, the serpent. The bronze serpent. God used that, but it's not. God uses water. But like I said on Sunday, it's not magical, holy water. It's what God uses water to accomplish as he washes away our sins. And so God uses buildings, prayer cloths, certain worship songs, worship leaders, instruments, preachers. But it's always about God and his power. And again, every church does things different. But I remember somebody came here once and said, are you okay if I pray with someone? And I was like, what? Are you the only one who can pray with people? I was like, man, Lord, no, please don't. I, I don't have enough time for that. Go pray with people. Now, if you start doing crazy stuff, I'm going to call you over and say, hey, you need to chill. I'm trying to have somebody's head like, oh, pushing them down. And I'm going to say, you know what? Let's have a talk. I don't mind you praying, but we're going to teach you how to pray with someone. You see, the electrical outlet is not powerful. We can go buy outlets right now from Lowe's. You can stick stuff in there. Grab a metal hanger. Stick it in there. Because nothing, there's no power in the outlet until it's connected to the source of power. Now, don't. Don't stick. Don't stick hangers in these electrical outlets. I'm only talking about, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me here in case you don't understand the way this works. I'm talking to those with disconnect. Somebody goes to Lowe's and pushes, I tried it and it zapped me. No, I'm talking about the ones in the box. That are, you can stick that hanger in, there, ain't nothing because it's not connected to power. The conduit, you have to have this, it has to be connected to the source of power. You're going to be discouraged on this journey, just as the Israelites were. But where will you turn? Do you turn to idols? Things in this world that are sinful and addictive? People who have negative influence on you and cause you to question your faith? Is that where you turn? Do you turn to what you deem godly things even? Well, I think we're supposed to turn to godly things, right? But sometimes we walk in, and sometimes we're guilty of this. God, I walked in on Sunday, and I really needed to hear from you. I was discouraged, and I did not sing any of my favorite songs. And you know, the ones they did weren't even that good. <laughs> this is not the truth. I'm just saying this is in our mind. I mean, like, is our worship to God, has it really fallen that far to where it, it needs that for us to worship? I don't care if somebody came up here like I did at my grandpa's funeral and said, I have a special today. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder... <clears throat> Granted, that's a little distracting, but we should be able to say, God, you're good. God, you're worthy. Why? Because his worth is not based on the performance of the person standing in the pulpit. If I, if I get up here and I just trip over my words and I can't even 
logically put together a thought, his word is still powerful. There's still something that hopefully I tripped over and said that you could say, man, but when he said that scripture, there's something powerful there. And so we don't want to get to the point where, God, I desperately need a touch. I just come to this altar. I did that when I was young a few times, and I'd, and I'd pray, and I'd hear my pastor walking around behind me. And, oh, God, let him stop and pray for me. Oh, I, I just, because, you know, there's something, there's something neat growing up, and, and, and I don't know if people still feel this way, but the, the hand or the voice of your pastor praying over you, it was, a, it was a cool thing. I wanted that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But my, but my connection to God cannot be based on the right person touching my shoulder, the right song being sung on the screen, the right level of the sound. It can't be, it can't be based on that. God wants you to rely on We can stand to our feet. God has called you to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, there's going to be times you're like, God, I desperately need a touch. Oh, I just need to see you. I need to feel you. And I believe God answers those prayers. You know what? When you're in those desperate moments, it's amazing how God will have the preacher preach that word that just speaks right to you. God will have that song really connect you. God will have somebody walk up to you at an altar and say, God, I pray, touch my sister right now. Touch my brother, Lord, be with them. I know there's, I just feel like they're struggling. God, just be with them. And, you know, he can do stuff. Or maybe you're driving somewhere and a song comes on the radio. I mean, like, God does incredible things to, to put stuff into our spirit and to speak to us, encourage us, uplift us. That's beautiful. But until he does that, you don't have to start looking somewhere else. Hey, we don't know where he's at. God, I don't know where God's at. I don't know where Moses is at. Where's the man of God at? Where's the woman of God at? I'm looking for something to cling to. And that's where people start turning to sex and drugs or, or even religious symbols. Because I'm looking for something to just try and cling to to fill this, this void. I'm in this wilderness. I feel uncertain. At that moment, just be like, God, I know that you know. You know where I am. In this journey, I, I, I don't even, I don't always even know where I'm going. But I know that I'm in pursuit of you. And so today I walk by faith, not by sight. I don't need a God that's a statue that I can see and describe and put my hands on. I need the God right now that says, who are you, God? I am. Because today I just need, I need a friend. I am. God, because today I just need deliverance. I am. God, because today I just need healing. I am. God, because today I just need to release this bitterness. I'm struggling with some feelings towards someone. I am. God, because today I just need some hope in my life. I, I am. God, because today my kids are just not carrying themselves the way I want. And I'm worried about them. I am. God, because today I need a financial miracle in my life. I got myself in a bad spot and I, oh, I am. That's the God that we serve. We don't need to look anywhere else. We don't need to turn to anyone. We don't need to turn to anything because God wants you to rely on him when you're discouraged, when you're frustrated, when you're going to turn to something, you're going to turn to someone. You're going to do it. Please let that be him. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to turn to something. You're going to turn to someone. Let that be him. I invite you right now. Maybe some of you are literally here now going, 
man, I have been walking through this. I feel like I am in the wilderness. I feel like I've been looking for someone. I've been wondering where he is. He is here right now. And he's inviting you to come and to be in his presence and to speak to him. He's reaching to you right now. I invite you right now to find a place to pray and to be in the presence of God and just Reminds me, God, I'm walking with you. I'm not walking based on my sight or my feeling. I'm walking with you based on my faith. And no matter what the rest of this world is doing, no matter what they're saying, God, my journey's with you and with no one else. Jesus, help me.